Uh, please join me in prayer as we come and listen to what the Lord has to say to us. Yeah, let's pray. Heavenly Father, what you have to say to us is a solemn word through your Son, our Lord Jesus. So we pray that you may grant us the humility to take heed and to listen carefully and to watch over our lives and truly to commit ourselves to you in prayer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, I think you would agree with me if I were to say that a popular theme or concept used by novels or movies uh, is that of the return of the king, isn't it? Or the return of the savior, the hero. So just think along with me. Um, J.R. Tolkien's The Return of the King or Star Wars, The Return of the Jedi. In all of these stories, the narrative is similar. There is a rule a reign of justice and goodness. Something happens, an enemy comes in, drives the good people away, takes over the country or the land, and subsequently this reign of justice and goodness is transformed to a reign of terror, evil, and darkness. And all this time, there is a hope, sometimes even a prophecy, that the day will dawn where a future king, a saviour, a hero will return and right all the wrongs, annihilate all evil, and restore justice and goodness. And the king returns, and in one sweeping movement restores all that the people had been longing and waiting for. In one sense, that was the narrative that the Jews in Jesus' day were living by. They were waiting for their king to return. They were waiting for their Messiah to appear. And that is how we are to understand the entire segment in Luke's Gospel that we are looking at uh, as a church um, this month. All the way from Luke chapter 18, verse 35 onwards, as Jesus draws near to Jericho to enter Jerusalem. Luke shows Jesus as the king who arrives in his own city. See the blind beggar at Jericho calling out to Jesus, Son of David, Son of David, as Jesus drew near. And the strange thing is that this beggar was actually told that was Jesus of Nazareth who's coming. But he calls, out, he calls out to Jesus, Son of David. Then the cries of the people calling Jesus the blessed king as he enters Jerusalem. Jesus points to his true identity as the Son of God himself even as Jesus shows that he is a descendant of David. See, all these incidences are to show us that Jesus is the long-awaited king who is now entering his own city and coming to his people. And more than that, Luke shows us that Jesus, the king, is here to do some amazing things, even things that the Jewish people would not have comprehended in their time. So Jesus is here to forgive sins and offer salvation, even to those whom we think least deserve it, like Zacchaeus, the tax collector. Jesus is here and is ready to answer those who challenge his authority. Jesus is here to show that he is king, and he will show this even to the top religious leaders of his days. And this is all across the different religious parties present then, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, all of them who refuse to acknowledge this truth. And to further back up this point, Jesus judges the temple 
and in doing so, he judges the entire religious establishment that the temple represents. And Jesus, in today's section in Luke's Gospel, reveals yet another startling truth. And that is, Jesus as the king who has arrived in his city is also the king who is coming back. And as the king who is coming back, Jesus tells us what to expect as we await this return of the king. So that's really the big idea of today's passage. That's the main uh, takeaway, okay, in that sense. Uh, you and I, even as we heard the passage being read out for us, we may get lost in the details as we read the passage. But at all points, we can take away and remember the big idea. Jesus tells us what to expect as we wait for his return. Okay? Actually, the key to understanding this passage is to answer this crucial question. What and when is Jesus talking about as he says what he says in these verses? Okay? So I've put together a diagram and I hope that that will help to explain it for us. So can you press the slide? Thank you. Yep. Click the first slide. Okay. Verse 5. And while some were speaking of the temple, Jesus said, As for these things that you see, the days will come where there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? Now, verse 5, uh, sorry, can you just go back one? Not yet. Yep. Okay, yep, just keep it there. Thank you. Now, verse 5 actually sets the context for us. Okay? Jesus here was talking about the events concerning the future destruction of the Jerusalem temple. And this was an event that took place in the year AD 70. Okay? Yet, in giving his answer, Jesus also refers to another event in the distant future where he talks about his return. Okay, then click the slide. Thank you. Verse 9. These things, okay, and these things here refer to the judgment and destruction of the temple. Okay, so Jesus says that these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Meaning, in Jesus' mind, even as the judgment and destruction of the temple serves as a sign to mark the end of the ages, there is more. And this is further reinforced by verse 27, where Jesus says, And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Okay? Meaning, whatever that Jesus says here in this section spans across time. But they are all tied together by the fact that they all have to do with the judgment that is bound up with the end of this current age, as the Jews in Jesus' day understood it. So perhaps the best way to understand this whole passage is to see it like a telescope. Okay, that's the best analogy I can think of. At times, Jesus zooms in near to events that were about to happen very soon. For example, the destruction of the temple in AD 70. Okay? But yet at other times, Jesus zooms out to describe how this whole time period before his return will be like. But the key thing is that in all these things that Jesus talks about here, they are connected. What Jesus says here links together two key events, the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in AD 70, and the events of the end signaling his return to earth. Jerusalem's destruction 
when it comes. Sorry, I think a bit too fast. Yeah, just you can wait for my cue. Thanks. Yeah, okay. Uh, Jerusalem's destruction when it comes, it will guarantee as well as picture for us the end, since one event mirrors the other. Both are part of God's plan as He moves time and history towards the end. Okay, so that's really the big picture for us. Uh, yeah, so just just remember what Jesus is doing here is a bit like a telescope. Okay, zooming in sometimes, zooming out at other times. Okay, now scholars have discussed further the finer details as to when Jesus is referring to which period in his speech here. Okay, and so for those interested, here's a very very rough schematic way of breaking it down further. Okay. And here's where I call upon the slide. Thank you. Yep, so the first one. Thank you. Yep. So verse 5 to 9, Jesus in there is focusing more on the impending destruction of the temple in directly answering the disciples' questions. Okay? Then from verse 10 to 11, following from verse 9 where Jesus says the end will not be at once, Jesus in verses 10 to 11 expands or zooms out to focus on the characteristics of this entire period before his return. Okay? Then in verse 12 to 19, uh, Jesus returns to a near focus again, as indicated by the opening line of verse 12, but before all this. Okay? Meaning, before all that I've told you about in verse 10 to 11 must take place, this will take place first. And Jesus switches focus back to the nearer events approaching Jerusalem. Okay? Then in verse 20 to 24, Jesus here focuses on the horror of the destruction of Jerusalem, as shown by his statement in verse 20, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies. And then in verse 25 to 28, the last line of verse 24, until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Okay? That leads us to see that Jesus expands the last portion of his speech to the events right before his return. Okay? So the above is really one way of understanding a more detailed breakdown of what Jesus is saying here in terms of the what and the when. Okay? But let us not forget that in the midst of all this, Jesus is really teaching us a simple message. What to expect as a whole while we wait for his return. Okay? okay thanks, can turn that off? So what are we to expect as we await the return of our King? I see at least four things from the passage fleshed out for us. Firstly, cosmic upheaval. Verse 10, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and pestilences and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. Now verses 10 to 11 is filled with language used to describe judgment scenes in the Old Testament, especially as they begin with God's judgment of Egypt in the Exodus. Right? And Jesus' usage of terrors and great signs from heaven is really Jesus' way of telling us that these signs are not just random happenings, but rather they are signs of God's activity. And then verse 25, and there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth, distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. 
verses 25 to 26, which, which describes the period just before Jesus' return, they describe things as nothing less than a great shaking, an upheaval. The seas, which in Jewish understanding symbolize chaos and turbulence, they will be roaring away, they will be raging away. The sun, the moon and the stars, which serve as symbols of time and stability, those will be shaken. Nothing less than a cosmic upheaval is described here. Perhaps the closest that we have experienced to a cosmic upheaval would be the COVID-19 pandemic. Many of us will agree that it has affected all areas of our lives, our physical health, our mental health, our economy, our social interactions, the politics and diplomatic relationships between country to country. It has truly been a local and global upheaval, what people are terming as a global upheaval, right? I don't know about you, and there are days where sometimes I feel that we cannot bear with it anymore, right? It could be something as simple as having to wear a mask for the whole day at work. So the other day, I was just walking in the, in the hot sun from uh, about 200 meters from one bus stop to my destination, and the sun was so hot, and I was wearing my mask and told myself, oh, I really don't know how I can take this, and it's only March, and they say that it'll get hotter by the time June comes, right? And, and it's that kind of, 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 of bearing of, of that burden, the cosmic upheaval that Jesus talks about here is much worse than that. Humanity will faint from terror, not knowing what is coming on into this world. We will feel trapped and tormented since all that we have trusted in and all that we have built up, all that we have taken pride in, they all seem to be failing one by one by one. Anxiousness, uncertainty, fear, is the order of the day. As we see this cosmic upheaval happening all around us, all the way from natural disasters to our man-made systems and structures falling apart one by one by one. Indeed, the whole of creation will be moaning and groaning and crying out, how much longer, O Lord? That's the type of cosmic upheaval that will surround us, especially in the days leading up to Jesus' return. Second thing, persecution. That's the second thing that Jesus tells us to expect as we await his return. And this persecution will come even in the form of family betrayal. See, one of the things that I've always heard about the Cultural Revolution in China um, was the spying of children on their parents and vice versa, right? Children were taught in school and they were told to report to the authorities. You know, if you go home and you see daddy or mommy uh, criticizing the government, or if you see them reading books and literature that they shouldn't be, and the Bible was certainly one of these forbidden books, the children were told to go back and report to the teachers. Okay? And all this was verified by a fairly recent news article in The Guardian. And the heading of the article is, China's Cultural Revolution son's guilt over the mother he sent to her death. Zhong Hongping was 16 when he denounced his mother for criticizing Chairman Mao. Now Zhang wants to make amends. And when you read the article, it's about how uh, Zhang Hongping, he was 16 years old, um, he reported to the authorities. And as a result of that, um, yeah, his mother was caught, interrogated, uh, uh, and finally executed. 
That's what Jesus tells us of the degree of persecution and betrayal that will come. It will come from those whom we love dearest, as Jesus himself was soon to experience. And the persecution will involve us, as it did for the disciples back in Jesus' day, it will involve us having to stand before governors and courts to defend ourselves and the faith we hold on to. And that is not too far away for us even here on our local shores, isn't it? The day is coming for us as the church in Singapore, where along with churches all over the world, where more and more we not only need to stand up and defend what we understand as the biblical understanding of sexuality, but we will find ourselves having to protect, having to contend for our space in the public common sphere to practice our biblical understanding of sexuality. Those days are coming. The third thing Jesus tells us what to expect, false prophets and teachers. Verse 8, And he said, See that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. In Jesus' days, these false prophets appear in the form of messianic pretenders. So Josephus, the Jewish historian, actually records some of these claims of these uh, false uh, uh, messianic pretenders in his writing, The Jewish Wars. In our day and age, though we hear less of false prophets who claim to be Jesus or the Christ, we also know that they are not totally absent altogether, right? So for example, the Korean Sinjongchi Church of Jesus, first brought to our attention because of COVID-19, they believe that its founder, Lee Man-hee, is the pastor that is promised in the New Testament and that the book of Revelation is written in secret metaphors or parables which only Lee is capable of deciphering. But more than leaders who directly claim to be the Christ or the Messiah, we also have to be careful of those who exert their leadership over us by calling for obedience and allegiance from their members in a way that equals the obedience and allegiance that we show only to the Lord Jesus. In my eyes, they too are counted as false prophets and teachers. And finally, this last category, in one sense, they don't really fall into the category of false teachers, but here I'm thinking of Christian leaders who sadly fail to walk the talk. The way they live their lives does not tally with their teaching. See, they may not speak falsehood with their words and lead people astray that way, but the way they live their lives, when all their hidden sins are revealed, it stumbles many Christians and it hurts others. What Jesus tells us is that this time period as we await for his return, we will find false teachers in any of the three categories that I have described above. And lastly, complete reversals of existing religious establishments. Verse 20, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Now to many of us, we hear these words today and we say, yep, yep, I know that Jesus was referring to the destruction of the Jerusalem temple and the destruction of that city in AD 70 when the Romans laid siege to Jerusalem in the first Jewish-Roman war. Huh? And we merely leave it as that. Yeah. 
But for the Jewish hearer of Jesus' day, he was saying something shocking, something radical. Jesus was saying that God has come to judge the very people whom he was in covenantal relationship with. But if we look deeper, if we read the preceding chapters in Luke's Gospel before this one, we would have discovered that the Jewish people, starting with their religious establishment, had rejected Jesus. And Jesus here is saying, if God had judged their Israelite forefathers by sending them into exile for their disobedience and rejection of him, then likewise, he will judge the Jews of Jesus' day for their rejection of Jesus. It is no use for the Jews and the religious leaders of Jesus' day to say, but we have the temple, we have the city, we have the temple cultic practices, we have the religious establishment. God was going to overturn all of that in the arrival of the king. And like what I mentioned earlier, if the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem serves as a guarantee and a picture of how the end will look like, then we too today, we must not be complacent and assume that everything is okay simply because we too have the religious establishment. We have our church structures, our church activities, our church going, our rituals. But if Jesus can come and judge all the religious establishments and practices of his day, if they are dead in nature, then likewise, in this time period leading to his return, he can also come and judge all the religious establishments and practices of our day, if they are likewise dead in nature. I think that's what it means when the book of 1 Peter chapter 4, 17 says, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? <clears throat> this is why it's so important that we constantly allow God to search our hearts, to make sure that we have personal faith and trust in the Lord Jesus, to earnestly repent of our sins, and cling on to the Lord Jesus. And to make sure that we never hide behind our veneer of religiosity and be found, very sadly, holding on to the wrong things at the end of the day. Dead religious systems and establishments. So four things that Jesus tells us to expect as we await for his return. Cosmic upheaval, persecution, false prophets and teachers, and complete reversals of our religious establishments. And in verse 29, Jesus draws upon the parable of the fig tree to show us what we should be doing as we wait for the return of the king. And really, the leaves of the tree serve as a sign and indication of which season was drawing near. In this case, summer, right? It's also the same, and today I was driving in a car and I heard this radio report. Again, they were... Uh, predicting the weather, and they said that, oh, today there'll be thunderstorms in the afternoon, and there really were thunderstorms, okay? So the, 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 the radio DJ said, so if you want to hang out your clothes, you know you can, but if you see the grey clouds approaching, please go and take in your clothes, okay? So that, that's a sign. That's the parable of Singapore weather for us, right? If you see dark grey clouds coming, you know that thunderstorm is coming. So that's what Jesus is saying here. When you see the leaves of the fig tree change, you know that the season is approaching. Yeah? 
So as we see these things happening, the four things listed above, know that the kingdom of God is near. And Jesus shows the certainty of these things that must soon take place by referring to a very interesting saying that has perplexed many biblical commentators down the ages. And that is verse 32. Okay? Verse 32. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. <clears throat> what does Jesus mean by this generation? Surely it cannot mean Jesus' current generation, because that generation, as far as we know, have all passed away, right? But yet the end has not come. Not all that has taken, not all has taken place yet. So most likely it either refers to a quality of humanity specifically the evil of humanity, okay? And if taken in this sense, then Jesus means that this evil generation of humankind will not pass away before he deals with them, okay? So that's one possible meaning. Or Jesus here could be referring to the generation of mankind right at the end, just before the return of Christ. The Son of Man will return before that generation passes away. That same generation of humanity that sees the start of the end will also see its end. Okay? So that's the other second possibility. So no matter what we understand of this generation, Jesus is showing us here the certainty of things. He is coming back. And Jesus ends by telling us three things that we all should do even as we hear his word then and now. Three things are, Take heed, watch, and pray. Doing these three things, taking serious heed of Jesus' words by obeying them, watching our lives to make sure that they are ready for Jesus' return, and praying for strength as we show our complete dependence upon God is what will enable us to endure to the end, to the glorious day where we will stand before the Son of Man and where we hear him say these words to us, Well done, good and faithful child. Come into my rest. Reflections of our current Christian lives as we wait for the return of the King. I have two reflections to share with us. First, if we understand all that Jesus is telling us uh, that we should expect as we wait for his return, then our question as Christians will not be, why are we suffering? But it will be, why are we not suffering more? You see, sometimes I think about what is seen as the common perception of Christianity in Singapore. It's seen as a religion for the middle and upper ranks of society, isn't it? It's seen as a religion for those who are professionals, a religion of the intellectuals. In other words, Christianity is portrayed or seen as a religion that helps you settle better into life in this world. And this idea of Christianity is very often given a further boost by the prosperity gospel. But if we hear carefully Jesus' words to us today, he's telling us being a Christian is not going to be like this during the time period as we await his return. In fact, it is one that's going to be filled with persecution, hatred from the world, 
betrayal from our very loved ones who do not share our faith. It's going to be one where we live through day by day, not feeling comfortable and, and basking in the luxuries and comforts that this world and life have to offer us. Instead, it's going to be one where we live through day by day, feeling the pangs of all the upheaval around us, where we moan and groan along with creation for the full revelation of our redemption. In short, we will not be living the life of the prosperity gospel, but instead, we'll be living the life of the persecution-filled gospel. So I think Jesus' words today hold out before you and before me the challenge by asking us this question. How are we living our lives in this world? Am I living my life in this world feeling so comfortable that we find ourselves saying more and more, this is home, truly? Or are you and I living our lives in such a way that shows us that this is not our home? And instead, by taking heed, watching and praying, we show our intense longing for our final home to be revealed. Second, Jesus' words today really gets us thinking, how ready am I for the Lord's return? So I remember American pastor Mark Driscoll, former pastor of Mars Hill Church, a pastor whom an article describes as, and I quote, a Calvinist who loved the Puritan reformers, but wasn't scared to use curse, curse words occasionally. Okay? Now, Mark Driscoll once said in a talk addressing pornography, okay, and um, the context is this is meant to be for men, and it's taken here that Driscoll is using his uh, confrontational and no holds barred kind of talk when, uh, that he's known for. Okay? And he actually said this uh, to the man present there. What do you want to be doing when the Lord Jesus returns suddenly like a thief in the night? What will the Lord return to find you doing? Will he come back to find you in the privacy of your room, in front of your device, eyes glued to the screen, and your hand in your trousers grabbing some part of your anatomy? Will the Lord come back and find you doing that? Now, certainly, I certainly wouldn't put things across in the way that Driscoll did. I wouldn't. But I want to highlight the seriousness of the point that he's driving at. What will the Lord return to find us his children doing? And while this certainly extends to all the blatant, explicit sins that we can think of, sexual sins, our speech sins, our anger sins, I want to say that this also extends to the inward, hidden sins that we harbour and flirt around with so much that we become addicted to them. Our sin of pride. Our hungering so much for power and authority and control. Us feeding and giving in to our insecurities. And sometimes all of this is justified and done under the name of ministry and the Lord's kingdom. You see, my friends, that's the irony of Mark Driscoll. As what I said, he was the former senior pastor of Mars Hill Church. And why he was the former senior pastor was because he resigned after a series of accusations were thrown at him for bullying and mismanagement. You can read about it all in the short article, Rise and Fall of Mark Driscoll, on the website Premier Christianity. So you just Google it and you should be able to find that. Right? Some of the things that he did. He fired two of his elders for objecting to him wanting to change the bylaws in the church. 
And by changing these bylaws, this would give Mark Driscoll more decision-making capabilities. He then instructed church members to shun these two elders. He cancelled all church membership and asked his members to reapply. And as they did so, they had to agree to the changes that he had made to the bylaws. And then there were accusations of the church paying almost US $250,000 to get one of his books to the New York Times bestseller list. And he was only investigated after nine of his staff members wrote a public letter. And these nine staff subsequently left the team. And all nine of them claimed that they were pushed away. Driscoll himself subsequently confessed to these accusations. Frightening, isn't it? How much one's desire for power and control can drive him or her. But that is how deep the question and challenge must go if we take seriously the Lord's word to us today. Even as we do not want the Lord Jesus to come back and find us wallowing in our sexual sins or other explicit sins, right? And in a sense, we can, we can applaud the work of Singhi and what they're doing in, in rescuing women from, from these sexual sins. But we must also check ourselves and not have our Lord come back to find us wallowing in our sins of pride, our insecurities, our thirst for power and recognition, our unforgiveness of one another, and so on. It will equally grieve our Lord's heart. This week has actually been a very exhausting week for me, both physically and more so emotionally. So much so that I was really so tired that I found it very hard to write this sermon. Normally, for those who know me, I, I, I try to finish my sermon prep by the latest Thursday. Okay? But this time round, I only managed to finish writing the sermon at 3 p.m. on Saturday afternoon. You see, the beginning of the week, I had to, together with others, we had to work through a pastoral situation that had been around for some time, where there was deep mistrust from one party to another, so much so that there was a breakdown of trust and suspicion filled the air. Things came to a hit this week, and the suspicion and the tension reached its peak. Thank God that by His grace, there was a breakthrough in the middle of the week, and things are slowly but surely healing now. And all of this time, I was meditating on this passage, getting ready to write the sermon, and one thought that gave me strength was this. If the Lord Jesus returns suddenly this week, would we want him to find us behaving the way that we did in the situation I was talking about? Distrust, suspicion, acting as if we were adversaries to one another. Or would we want him to come back and to find us acting in trust, love, and a genuine openness to listen and hear each other out? As how we all should be doing as members of his one body. This was the thought that strengthened me to keep working towards reconciliation. And really, whatever that applied to me in my situation can also apply to us in our individual situations. It may be a spousal relationship. It may be a parent-child relationship. It may be a co-worker-to-co-worker relationship. But what would we want the Lord to be seeing in our relationships? when he returns. Let us pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are the returning king. 
Thank you for teaching us and reminding us what to expect as we await your return. Please help us to take heed of all that you have said to us, to be watchful and to pray so that we may be ready for your return. Dear Lord, if, if getting ready for your return calls for any of us to repent of any sins that we may still be clinging on to, we repent, O Lord. And we ask that your Spirit may give us the assurance of your forgiveness and the power to walk in a new way of life. That even as we wrestle with this tension, this struggle, this daily repenting, all the more we may long for the day of your return. For then we will know that indeed our redemption is near. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen. <laughs>